Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? Dramatic, informative, scientific, frightening, comforting, inspiring. These are all ways to talk about climate change or global warming or whatever you choose to call it. I'm relaxed between climate crisis and climate change, but I think the, the language we use is important and it does need to convey what's, both what's happening factually and also the urgency. This week, we're watching our language, everyone's language, around climate change. What provokes people to rise to the challenge? Activist Greta Thunberg, judging by the words she spoke in Davos last year, certainly seems to embrace the fear factor. I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic. I want you to feel the fear I feel every day. And then I want you to act. I want you to act as if the house was on fire. Because it is. It's a powerful message, a call to action. But we'll hear how hope might just beat fear when it comes to motivating change. There are positive effects of fear on action, but not always. Fear can backfire. We don't see downsides of hope in the same way that we do with fear. In this episode, who's speaking, who's listening, and a study that suggests how to turn words into deeds. And throughout the next half hour, you'll hear the voices of past guests on our show with their own take on the language of climate change. We're going to start the show today with someone who considers himself a master of the message. Republican strategist Frank Luntz became notorious on climate change nearly two decades ago. That's when a memo he wrote for the George W. Bush administration was leaked. In it, he counseled them to drop the phrase global warming in favor of the less scary sounding climate change. He wanted to sow doubt and remove any suggestion that humans were to blame. Now, zoom ahead to last summer. Luntz appeared before senators in Washington, D.C., and began with a mea culpa. I'm here before you to say that I was wrong in 2001. I don't want credit. I don't want blame. Just stop using something that I wrote 18 years ago because it's not accurate today. A new Frank Luntz, complete with a new strategy for talking about climate change, one that banks on hope. Here he is on how to persuade people that adapting to a greener economy will mean a better future for workers. It's not just about jobs. I'm going to ask the three senators up there, do you have a job or do you have a career? Senator, we all have careers. Then why are we talking about the jobs that are created from this? A job is something that you go to nine to five. A career is something that you have 24-7. A job is something that you can't wait to get out of. A career is something that you embrace. Why are we not talking about careers when it comes to climate change? That's number one. Number two, how to talk about what looms ahead if nothing changes. Here he counsels making it personal. A threat or a problem is negative. 
A consequence is something that personalizes this issue. I promise you, Senator, if you talk about the consequences of climate change, people will pay far more attention to you than if you, as we walked in here, referred to it as a crisis. And beyond specific words, there's also a strategy he calls no regrets. It's not about fear and what we risk losing, but about what we stand to gain. (laughs) If we do this right, we get cleaner air. We get less dependence on foreign fuels and enhanced national security. We get more innovation in our economy and more jobs and great new careers. And that's if the scientists are wrong. If the scientists are right, we get all of those things and begin to solve what could be the most catastrophic environmental problem that any of us have ever faced. That's a pretty good bet to make because it's a no regrets strategy, and that's what I want you to call it. It doesn't mean it's easy, but it means if we do it and do it right, we get all of those benefits out of this policy approach, and that's why it's the right thing to do. I'm giving them a piece of the negative, I'm wrapping it in the positive, and it's a call to action. There you are, Frank Luntz's new guide to talking about the climate. But however it's spun, we can't ignore the fact that some people are very afraid of what climate change will mean. Take 19-year-old Emma Lim, a student at McGill University. She's so concerned she's pledged not to have any children unless she sees real action from our political leaders. And she's encouraging other young people to do the same. Emma, hello. Hi. Do you remember when you first heard about climate change? Um... I'm going to be honest with you, no, uh, I, I don't. And I think that's because my generation has really grown up with the idea of climate change and the climate crisis. It's something that we're taught about from a really young age. And so, you know, there's never a moment that we can recall learning about it. It's just part of our reality. Do you have some sense of, of how old you were when you came to this conclusion that, that things just were not going to get better? Yeah, um, I think that I was 15 or, or 16 maybe 17, uh, I'd been involved in activism for a little bit, and and kind of the more you understand what's going on as far as politics go and governance and uh, and with respect to the role of industry and the climate crisis, you, you realize that really there, there are a lot of possible solutions, and the main thing that's holding us back from implementing them uh, is ourselves. Okay, so you you get this sort of awakening that things are going to get better um, at the age of, of 16 or 17. How did you get to the decision not to have children? I think that's that's really a, a twofold question. And, and the first part is just the way that my generation thinks and perceives the future. I mean, we joke about the water wars. We joke about a uh, climate crisis. But, you know, the reality is that when we're thinking about the future, we're not thinking happy thoughts the future for us is, is stressful and it's not a place that we want to bring children into. And then the other half of that is that when the pledge came about, uh, it was an election year and we felt hopeless and we were really thinking, like, what's a way for us to share the way that we feel about the climate crisis, about the inaction of the people who are supposed to be leaders? And... Uh, we thought that we would use our bodies um, and we would use the idea of the next generation to make as large a statement as we could. And so that's where this idea of not having children came out of. It came out of like the reality of what we were thinking. And then also from a strategic point of view, 
it came out of the idea that we needed to do something to get people's attention uh, and to make them care. But for you personally, how difficult of a decision was this? A uh, really hard decision because, uh, I mean, I've always wanted children. I've always wanted to, to be a mom. And so the idea of living a life without children is, well, it's really depressing, to be honest. But then I guess also if I were to have children, I wouldn't want to expose them to, to what I think the future might hold. So it's mm-hmm. a hard and an easy decision. The, the name of your campaign, No Children, No Future, that just doesn't sound like there's a lot of hope there. I'm wondering what made you decide to present it that way. Uh, well, to be honest, I don't think there there is a lot of hope. Um, the, the facts are that we have the solution to the climate crisis, and the solution is a radical reform. Uh, the solution is walking away from capitalism. The solution is to stop subsidizing the oil and gas industry. And it doesn't seem like our politicians, uh, the people in power are willing to give up uh, their hold on, on money, on, on power. And so the rest of us are, are left struggling, to be honest. I, I'm betting there are people listening to this who may think that, that you have an overly pessimistic way of looking at the future. I'm wondering what your response is to that. Yeah, well, for a lot of people, our worst case scenario is already reality. Um, And I guess not being pessimistic is something that comes with a lot of privilege. Like here in in Canada and North America, we're able to not think about, you know, the reality of climate change, at least for now, because I mean, we, we do get the forest fires, we do get the flooding in Ontario, we get, you know, different crops growing, uh, we get changes in annual temperature, but the worst effects, the the war, the drought, the famine, that hasn't reached us yet, and it won't reach us for a while. But for a lot of people, that's already reality. And um, when we're being overly hopeful about the future, we are ignoring the fact that people are already suffering because of us, and uh, we are ignoring the science. Well, how worried are you? How scared are you about what, what's to come in the future? I guess I am resigned. I mean, I'm not actively terrified because I, I feel like I'm doing, uh, you know, as much as I can. And I think that whatever comes, we're just going to have to face it. And I, I also think that, fortunately, humans are, you know, both better and worse than we give ourselves credit for. Like, we have caused this crisis, but I also think that we will be able to pull through and respond. Emma Lim, thank you very much for talking to me today. Uh, thank you for having me. I hope that wasn't too depressing. Thanks, Emma. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Emma Lim, a 19-year-old McGill student in Montreal. I think the last time I used global warming was when I was seven. I'm pretty sure. I don't think I've used global warming in a long time because I just feel that it's very outdated. It doesn't completely capture the severity of it. Uh, I don't use global warming uh, because I think that that oversimplifies it. People then think, oh, it's all about just the world heating up when actually it's far more about the chaos that we throw into the system as a result of changing the system. Those are the voices of past guests sharing which words they use to talk about climate change. You heard 16-year-old Ira Reinhardt-Smith and disaster researcher A.R. Siders. Later in the show, we'll hear about the language ramping up from climate change to climate crisis or even emergency, and why some think that is a bad idea. 
It might be tempting to think all this concern about messaging and nuance is beside the point. The information is what matters. But those who study persuasion disagree. Robin Nabby has researched the effects of emotions, like fear and hope, as a professor of communication at the University of California in Santa Barbara. She joins me now. Welcome. Thank you, Laura. What does communications research tell us about how important emotion is in terms of how messages are received? Well, emotion is fundamentally important. So there's the information that we receive and that we know, and then there's how we feel about it. And ultimately, it's how we feel about that information that dictates how we behave moving forward. Okay, so people, though, aren't going to react the same. How do you know what emotion a message is going to trigger? Well, that's a really good question because our emotions are going to be different depending on who we are and our attitudes, our current beliefs, our ideology, et cetera. Um, but basically, when we're trying to design messages to evoke particular emotions, we try to uh, include in those messages uh, information that will um, relate to what we call the themes of emotion. So with fear, for example, the theme is threat, right? We feel fear when we're threatened in our environment. So if we're trying to design a fear appeal, then we will incorporate messages that most people or our target audience would find to be threatening. How it's received is also differs from person to person based on a number of things too, right? Like values and ideology? Absolutely. Our attitudes are basically lenses, uh, or our, our ideology is like a lens through which we look at the world. And we're not always aware that our current attitudes are affecting how we're taking in information. And if we were to use an analogy, like uh, I use a fruit analogy often, it's, um, you know, if you go into a grocery store and you pick up a watermelon, you might be like, wow, this watermelon's really heavy. Uh, now, if you had just been carrying something really heavy, like your child who weighs 40 pounds, put the child down, pick up the watermelon, you might go, wow, this watermelon's pretty light. Now, the watermelon's exactly the same, right? But it's your frame of reference that's different. And that's what our attitudes do. Our attitudes are our frame of reference, and that is what we're assessing all other information that we're exposed to in the environment through that lens. Okay, and so then so many of the messages about climate change are fear-based, the threat of a future that would happen if we don't take action. Is that effective? The research overwhelmingly shows over decades and multiple different topics that fear is effective in generating attitude and behavior change. So that's not, they're not huge effects, but there are um, positive effects of fear on action, but not always. So fear can backfire. So in some cases, when um, we feel fear, uh, that motivates us to take protective action. But if we feel uh, that there isn't an action that we can take, then we still have to manage our fear, right? It's still adaptive for us to handle those threats. And if we can't do it through some productive action, then we're going to manage the fear by doing things like denying the threat, uh, by reacting against the source and deciding, oh, they don't know what they're talking about. They're just trying to scare me. We'll minimize the problem. Oh, it's not as bad as they say. And those are all ways that we can manage our fear, but we're not actually managing the threat in the environment. Now, you've done a study that specifically looks at how messages of hope and fear were received by undergraduate students in California. Tell me how you tested that. Mm -hmm. 
Well, basically, we were interested in uh, the relationship between fear and hope. And would it benefit uh, climate change messaging to incorporate hope into those messages? Because as you had said, Laura, so many messages are focused on fear. But fear and hope are very closely related in that fear um, and hope are both about uncertainty. But the value of hope is that it inspires us. And when we feel inspired, we're more likely to take action. Um, and we can feel good about that as well. And so in this study, we uh, designed messages uh, that were framed differently. And by framing, I mean, we present the same information, but through different lenses, either positive or negative. And when you frame messages positively, like, hey, if you um, rode your bike and use your car less often, that's going to really help the environment. That's a positive frame. If we say, if you don't ride your bike and you keep using your car, that's going to negatively affect the environment. That's a negative frame. And so uh, we took the same information framed positively and negatively. And what we find is that negatively framed information evokes more fear and positively framed information evokes more hope. And when we looked at the effect of the emotions people felt in response to those framed messages, we found that hope was more predictive of advocacy behavior than fear. So the hope actually made them more likely to take action? Exactly. If you focus on hope, though, is there a risk that the severity of the situation just won't be clear? That's a really important concern. And um, the research that we've done so far and that we see on hope is that uh, we don't see downsides of hope in the same way that we do with fear. So in other research that we've done, we've seen that uh, health messaging and not on one particular topic, but across a range of topics that when framed in terms of hope and future possibility, that people are more likely to trust news organizations, more likely to trust scientists, more likely to say they want to protect their health moving forward. Uh, and then in this particular study uh, that we were discussing, we see that hope motivates uh, more advocacy behavior in, in favor of protecting the environment. So we don't see the kind of uh, defensiveness or denigration of the source or minimization that we do with fear. Okay, so there's no one size fits all solution for talking about climate, but I'm wondering what advice, what would be your advice for people who have to do it anyway? One of the uh, aspects of that study that I didn't talk about was how we sequence emotions. Uh, and sequencing of emotions is really critical because each emotion has an adaptive function. And when we design messages with those adaptive functions in mind, then we can create better messaging. So if we design a fear appeal, we only focus on the fear and the threat, it could work, but there are some downsides. If we focus only on hope, it might be, and I think this is what you might've been suggesting earlier, is that we might think, oh, well, that's great, but I don't really see what the problem is. And so I don't feel that motivated because it doesn't seem so bad right now. And so what we were looking at is what if you put those together? So you frame the uh, problem in terms of threat, but the solution in terms of hope. And in that case, that sequencing demonstrated three times greater effectiveness when it was sequenced as fear, hope versus just threat all the way through and fear all the way through. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Robin Nabby is a professor of communication at the University of California in Santa Barbara. 
Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. It does depend on the context. I um, very much support the language of uh, climate emergency. Here are more thoughts from past What on Earth guests on the language of climate change, including whether to follow suit with the Guardian newspaper. It decided last year to use the terms climate crisis or climate emergency instead. Now, the first voice you'll hear here is Federal Environment and Climate Change Minister Jonathan Wilkinson. We talk about climate change, which is a scientific fact, and it is a crisis. It is a crisis in terms of how quickly it is evolving, how perhaps we have left it far longer than we should have. Um, And so that's normally the way that I would talk about it. Personally, I prefer to adopt the word emergency. You know, it feels like more... We, we don't got that much of time. We need to do it right now. My worry about ratcheting up the language we use um, and stressing the climate emergency or the climate crisis or the climate disruption or chaos is that I'm not sure where we go from there. And all evidence points to the fact that we will see impacts continuing to accelerate. So you heard Jonathan Wilkinson, followed by Lin Liu of Greenpeace in Beijing, and Sarah Birch from the University of Waterloo. So hope is useful, but things are forecast to get worse. Just consider one of the main scenarios that climate modelers use. It's often called business as usual and projects what could happen with very high greenhouse gas emissions, like a global temperature rise of four degrees or more by the end of the century. In other words, a nightmare. But that model, which scientists call RCP 8.5, is not the only projection of how quickly the planet will heat up or how we will respond. And my next guest thinks the phrase business as usual carries a risk. It might make a worst-case scenario sound inevitable. Zeke Hausfather is the Director of Climate and Energy at the Breakthrough Institute, an environmental research center in Oakland, California. Hello. Hello. Great to be on. In in layperson's terms, what is the worst case scenario that climate modelers talk about? Sure. So when we talk about climate change uh, and what's going to happen in the future, we're really dealing with three different sources of uncertainty. The biggest source of uncertainty is how much emissions uh, we will have. Uh, And there, there actually has been some good news in recent years. But that said, that's just one of three sources of uncertainty. The other big ones are how sensitive the climate is to our emissions. And there, there's a a fairly wide range of uncertainty. Uh, And then the third source of uncertainty is what we call carbon cycle feedback. So as the world warms, uh, the ability of the land and the oceans to absorb our emissions decreases. Right now, about half of our emissions end up in the atmosphere, but the other half gets absorbed by the ocean and the land. Um, And there's a lot of uncertainty around just how much the ability of the oceans and the land to absorb our emissions will decrease as the world warms. And so because of all these uncertainties, we still can't rule out some very high levels of warming of of four degrees or higher by the end of the century if, you know, we get unlucky with climate sensitivity or carbon cycle feedbacks. Right. But a a lot of scientific literature also calls this 
the business as usual scenario when you're talking about worst case. I'm wondering what the, you think the problem is with the phrase business as usual. So a lot of the scientific literature has referred to this scenario called RCP 8.5 as business as usual. Um, and it was never intended to be business as usual. When it was created in the mid-2000s, it was sort of the 90th percentile of the no policy scenarios in the literature. So one, one of the worst case scenarios. Um, and it's become a lot less likely since then. You know, it's a scenario that sees global emissions tripling by the end of the century. It, it sees global coal use increasing by 600% above today's levels. And while that seems, you know, plausible a decade ago, it's it's really hard from where we are today in terms of technology and prices and to see how a, a world where we sort of turn around and make coal the dominant energy source of the 21st century would be likely. And so we've argued that, you know, we should start referring to it as more of a worst case scenario than a, a business as usual scenario. Because the business as usual is saying this is what will happen if we just keep carrying on the way we are right now. Is that the idea? Well, yeah, and, and because business as usual today isn't the same as business as usual was a decade ago, right? The world has taken some limited steps toward uh, implementing climate policies. You know, we've succeeded in making some clean energy technologies cheap. And so we're not really in a in what used to be the business as usual world anymore. You know, we're certainly not in the world we want to get to. You know, we have a lot more steps to take and a lot more action to take to, you know, meet our international targets around climate change. But at the same time, we've taken some action and our scenarios should reflect where we are today, not you know, what could have been if, if we wound back the clock and, and did nothing for the last 10 years. Now, you've talked about the, the, the assumptions that seem really unlikely, like how much coal we'd use in the future. Why have those assumptions become embedded in those scenarios if they're unlikely? Well, again, when the scenario that a lot of people use was created 15 years ago or so now, um, it did seem a lot more likely than it does today. And there's a certain amount of desire for consistency in scenarios, you know, we ran the last generation of climate models using that scenario, so we want to have runs from the latest generation that are consistent with those. It's it's useful to have these really big warming scenarios to sort of pull out a signal in sort of some of the climate noise and climate model runs. Uh, and it's useful as a worst case scenario to see, you know, what might happen if we really decide to burn all of our coal. We're mostly arguing that we just need to stop calling it business as usual or stop, you know, making people think that it's the most likely outcome from from where we are today. But what is the risk if you focus on these very high emission scenario? What is the risk in terms of public perception? So there's a couple potential downsides to it. One is it creates an easy target for those who are dismissive of climate change or the need to take action on climate change to attack. They'll say, oh, well, that study uses an unrealistic scenario, so we shouldn't put much faith in it. And it also can lead to, you know, a certain amount of doomism uh, around some climate impacts. You know, we've seen a rise in, in the number of people who are arguing that, you know, it's too late to deal with climate change or, you know, it's going to cause the extinction of the human race. And that sort of rhetoric um, can, you know, hurt action rather than help action in some cases. People just won't be motivated anymore. Or, you know, if in a few more years, the world hasn't quite managed to drastically reduce emissions yet, you know, they might give up hope. But, but but I'm curious, isn't it useful to talk about how bad it could get in order to motivate? I think it is. I, I think it's just important to also be scientifically accurate in, in the discussion. So I think, you know, instead of focusing on a worst case emission scenario, I think it's much more interesting to say, you know, what would the world look like if we actually saw, you know, four degrees of warming by the end of the century globally? And again, because you can get to four degrees of warming through a lot of different ways. It doesn't just have to be burning all our coal. It could be more realistic energy pathway, but with higher climate sensitivity or higher carbon cycle feedbacks and some of these other big uncertainties in the climate system. 
And those uncertainties in some ways make it even more important for us to reduce emissions, right? Because our emissions are the one uncertainty we can control. And by the time we know that, you know, the climate is unusually sensitive or that carbon cycle feedbacks are going to be very strong, you know, it'll be too late to reverse course. I, I, that that leads me to this, though, because you're, you're talking about the danger in the language being that people give up hope. I'm wondering how hopeful are you? So I'm hopeful we can avoid the worst impacts of climate change, but I'm also very skeptical that we can get to the best case scenarios, you know. The world has focused a lot on limiting warming to one and a half degrees above pre-industrial levels, which sort of came out of the Paris Agreement as an ambitious target. And I'm I'm a little worried the ship has kind of sailed on that. You know, it presents us with really a tough choice if we want to meet that target. We either have to cut all global emissions to zero in the next 20 years, which is really hard to see happening, or to have a slower emissions reduction, but to have massive amounts of carbon sucked out of the atmosphere by the end of the century through technologies we don't really have today. And we're talking about planetary scale interventions. Um, and it's really hard to see stuff like that happening. So, you know, I, I don't think the ship has sailed on limiting warming to two degrees. I think it's going to be tough and it's going to require a lot more political will than is evident today. But I'm pretty skeptical that we can really manage the ambitious 1.5 degree target at this point. We've simply waited too long. Zeke Housefather will leave it there. Thank you very much. No worries. Good to be on. Zeke Housefather is the Director of Climate and Energy at the Breakthrough Institute in California. I fear that is the end of our show, but I hope you'll join us next week when we look at transportation and the challenge of going electric. Have you thought about buying an electric vehicle? What would stand in your way? Send us an email to earth at cbc.ca. On Twitter, find us at CBC What on Earth or me at Laura Lynch, CBC. And if you haven't given us a review, please do and tell your friends to subscribe. Thanks this week to the What on Earth team. Associate producers Rachel Sanders and Andrew Curiata and producer Molly Siegel. Our technician is Matthias Wolfson. And this week, Lisa Johnson was our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.